Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What happens to our emotional well-being when different physiologic changes happen in the body? Does biology control the mind, too? Well, we've got a panel of experts today. We have Dr. Janelle Kaloy chen She is a clinical health psychologist at Hawaii Center for Psychology, received her doctorate at Argosy University, Hawaii campus, and holds a postdoctoral master's of science in clinical psychopharmacology from the University of Hawaii at Hilo. We also have Dr. Lauren Kagami here. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Hawaii Center for Psychology, specializing in health psychology. And she received her doctorate in clinical psychology from Pacific University School of Professional Psychology in 2014. And we have the leader of the pack, Dr. Martin Johnson. He has actually established the Hawaii Center for Psychology. And really, it's become the premier center for people to really work on what are some of the issues for which they may need just some extra counseling, some extra therapy, some extra thoughts someone to bounce the ideas off of. And Martin, you brought that here to the island. So thank you for getting that group of excellent professionals with us here. And welcome to all of you to The Body Show. Thank you, Kathy. It's good to be here. All right. Well, you know, today I wanted to talk about an interesting topic. And a lot of times we think about hormone levels and how that affects how people look or how they appear or physical things that happen in the body. We know that adolescence is a time where there's hormone changes, menopause, men go through testosterone changes, but very often we don't necessarily look at how that affects the mind. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the psychological effects of some of the biological changes that our bodies go through and what are some ways that we can learn to support one another and also support loved ones and ourselves through this process. So I want to talk with you first, Dr. Janelle. Let's talk a little bit about the most common time when people think about hormones. I guess Mm -hmm. I'm thinking raging hormones as a teenager. That's sort of a very common time. And let's talk a little bit about what are some of the hormonal effects on the psychological well-being of our adolescents, our young adults, that that time in life when things are raging and people may not understand behavior, you know, why is my teenage son doing this or why is my teenage daughter hanging out with so-and-so? There's a lot that goes on during that time. What are some of the common impacts that hormone levels have? You know, I think one of the reasons why there's such a, a, a period of turmoil is like you turmoil mentioned, is a good word to put it. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Um, is there is a tremendous amount of change that, that's occurring during that time, right? Um, from around an average sort of onset for for females uh, is around ten to twelve, and from that time, there's kind of a, a steady increase, right, in the female reproductive hormones of estrogen, progesterone, and and some of the others that can lead to sort of a wide array of physical changes, right? With um, hips start sort of widening, um, start to sh- develop hair in areas that you didn't have before, um, breast starts to, you know, develop. And all, there's even the sort of the the growth spurts that can occur as well, right? And particularly, um, we were just talking about this, when those changes occur, you know, um, in comparison to one's peers, if just say Sally starts, you know, developing breaths, you know, a year or two before most of her, her friends, right? Or starts... Um, her period, you know, much earlier, it can really kind of a, a 
a, it's a tremendous amount of change for a young girl to kind of be going through, um, but can really kind of impact a girl's sense of, of self-image, right? Self-body image and self-esteem. And that's when a lot of the concerns we have about young girls getting this altered sense of, you know, looking perfect, the perfect right. body. I want to look like the kids or the girls in the magazines mm-hmm. and, and how we don't realize that Photoshop is part of that and good lighting and makeup and all these other things that make the magazines not necessarily reality. Mm-hmm. And then for anybody for whom it is, good for you, but then there's the rest of us. And so you're right. That sort of does set us up for right. that that sense of body dysmorphia, that sense mm-hmm. that I don't look the way I'm supposed to. All my friends look different. I want to hide it and right. maybe a sense of shame. Do you see that? I mean, is that one of the common things that happens when young girls are sort of prematurely or precociously yeah, going through puberty? I do. And for all girls, right, when there's all that change occurring in, in their body, right, they're physically developing, that there's a lot, a heightened sense of focus, right, on on sort of their body and self-image. And that can lead to, like I mentioned, um, greater sort of self-consciousness and, and, and particularly, like you mentioned, right, with with exposure to media and all the photoshopped supermodels of um, sort of unrealistic body images, right, that that can really affect a girl's sense of, of sort of self-image. And, and I can only imagine if you're like the last girl, like if right. everybody else seems to have developed and you're like the only one, like, hello, what's going on? Everyone else looks like a girl and I'm still looking like... I'm, you know, eight. That's another issue that that being first can be difficult. Being last, I think, can also have an effect on on psychological well-being. Now, what happens when that occurs? How can parents help young women through that? And are there any are there any things that even psychologists can do to sort of help women through this transition so that they can get a better, healthier body image? Because it's not all bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, definitely providing information, right, that this is sort of a normal and healthy development a process that's sort of occurring, right? Um, and, and even for, for parents or, or mothers, maybe going out with their daughter and buying their first bra, showing them how to shave or showing them how to use feminine products, right? So it, it's not such a scary process. And sort of reassuring them that these changes are going to be occurring. They occur with everybody, right? That, that they're not alone. And helping to kind of um, look at some of the, the, their thoughts regarding the changes and and help them to sort of embrace their new curves, right, and their new sense of womanhood so that they don't just see it as a I'm different or I don't like these new changes that are occurring in comparison to Julie or Sally, right? Now, we know that teenage girls are so attached to their mothers at this age, and, of course, they'll listen to everything their mother says. So what should you do if you have a teenage daughter and they totally don't want to listen to you? Can you can you get some support from elsewhere? Do you think it might be helpful to kind of call up a few aunties and say, hey, you know what? She's not listening to me these days. Do you think you can go take care of this? I mean, should you have a social support network? What if they don't want to listen to mom? Go shopping with mom for their first, you know, undergarment. I mean, that just sounds like a thrill a minute for for some (laughs) young girls. It's a good point, Kathy. You know, who else could be part of this mix? Oh, go ahead. Well, uh, you know, not being a mother but being a dad – well, we're um, going to get to you, Martin. You got it. But tell me, you're a dad. Would your daughter ever say, "Dad, I want to get underwear"? You know, let's let's go ahead and take me to a place. And well, you know, I think um, 
uh, I, I'm actually the father of a son, but uh, single dads of daughters actually sometimes have to wrestle with this. Yeah. Um, and it can feel awkward to the daughter and awkward to the dad. Um, but I think you're right. Um, you know, having they say it takes a village. Right. So if you have aunties, if you have other family members, that's always a good option. But I think the thing that most parents forget is that uh, kids are much more accessible when you're listening more than you're speaking. And I think the trap that most of us fall into, myself included, my son's listening and he'll be nodding his head. Um, we'll is, give you the number, buddy. That's Don't right. Worry. Oh, God. Uh, is uh, we feel like we're the parent. We have all these things we need to teach. We want to pass on this wisdom. We want to give them the good, solid information that uh, Janelle's talking about. Um, and so we start off by talking a lot. And um, if we sometimes wait for the kid to raise the question or we ask them, well, so, you know, what's going on in school? What's going on with your peers? How are you feeling about things? Um, and when they ask us the question, I know my son uh, asked me several years ago where babies come from. Um, rather than launch into the technical details, he was about eight or nine at the time, I go, well, so son, that's a really good question. What do you know about that? And basically the level that he was asking at was really not the sexual level whatsoever. Um, and if I had simply launched into the lecture. The talk. Exactly. You would have been like, oh, my God, I'm never asking Dad anything else ever. You know exactly. what he was talking about. So, so okay. I think a, a big key for parents is to be willing to listen more than you speak. And even when they ask you, you know, gee, Mom, what is it about this or Dad, what is it about that? Say, that's a great question. And tell me a little bit more about why you're asking. Tell me what you think about that. And that'll help one that stalls and it gives you a minute to get your breath and, and figure out what you want to say. The other thing is it gives you a context as to where the child's coming from. And that can be really make a difference in terms of how the conversation goes from there. Now, Dr. Janelle was talking a little bit about precocious puberty or even just standard puberty effects in girls and how this can affect well-being and sense of self and, and body image. It's a little different for boys. When they start to develop early, that may not necessarily be something that is considered to be precocious or, you know, them feeling upset about it. They might be excited. Is it you have a teenage boy? Mm -hmm. How old is your son? He's thirteen. Okay, so he's kind of at this age. If mm -hmm. he's all of a sudden looking like buff like an eighteen year old, I mean I think for boys there's a sense of pride. Sure. Right. Um you know as uh, Janelle pointed out, early puberty for boys does seem to have somewhat of a differential advantage as opposed to different disadvantage. And and I want to emphasize that it varies very much from kid to kid, right? So um, being the tallest one in your class can be an advantage for boys, but sometimes maybe not. Maybe it's a boy who doesn't want to sort of stand out. Um, but yes, it is very different. And it's sort of very interesting. There's a There's been studies done where the later the uh, onset of puberty male or female, the better they are at math. So there's something about math geeks after all, right? That, that, there you is know, something about yeah. math geeks. So it really does sort of affect huh. the brain in different ways. Um, and it's very interesting sort of how that all turns out. I feel better. I was never sporty, but mm. I was a mathlete. There you go. I was huh. never an athlete, but boy, I was on the math team. All right. I don't think I would still I don't think I'd still be able to be on the math team now. But OK, so it may be a different impact for for teenage boys as they go through adolescence and they go through some changes that occur in their body a little different than it may be for teenage girls. This may be a time that people start getting concerned, parents in particular, about whether or not their child is going through some sort of concerns about depression and how what is normal when they're going through their teenage years versus what is abnormal. And, you know, Dr. Lauren, 
you have some specialty in doing some of the screenings for some of these medical concerns, depression, anxiety, ADHD. What sort of, what would you consider to be normal for a teenage girl or boy as far as mood changes? And how would a parent know if that's abnormal? That's a really good question. Um, I think like Dr. Johnson was mentioning, it's it really varies based on the child. Um, the overall theme that we do see is that during adolescence, there is this kind of centering of attention on um, your identity and yourself, that my peers are watching me um, and observing me as I grow into this individual. And so you'll see that across both females and males. Um, and um, as far as uh, what would be normal or abnormal, um, it would be normal to see some shifts in mood, some shifts in experimenting with different identities, maybe different clothing, different peer groups, um, just trying on different personalities maybe. Um, and you, you may see some adolescents being um, a little more outgoing or you might see them being a little more worried about academics. Uh, where you might want to pay more attention is where you see um, your child maybe withdrawing from their peers, feeling um, a little rejected or kind of isolated from their peer group, uh, not really hanging out with friends. Maybe they don't uh, really have a lot of motivation to try hard in school. Maybe they're struggling academically, um, or maybe they're trying really hard, but they're still not getting the results that you would expect um, given the amount of effort that they've put forth. Um, you might see them having trouble getting out of bed, um, being really moody, uh, maybe some tantrums that are kind of in excess of what you would see in other people their age, and kind of using their peer group to gauge uh, what would be considered uh, concern versus normal development. So sort of when they take it beyond the usual, when it's starting to affect their academics, starting mm -hmm. to affect their home life, their friends, when it really starts to have that impact, then what should parents do? If you have a teenage son or daughter, or you're an auntie, you have a teenage niece or nephew, you start to see some of these behaviors and you get a little concerned, who can parents contact? What should they do? And when is too soon to mm -hmm. see a psychologist? When is it just not yet necessary or when is it maybe the mm -hmm. most appropriate thing? I think that would depend a lot on the family and the culture, on the, the um, environment for that child. Uh, I think it would be a conversation, ideally, between parents and maybe even other family members with the child, like Dr. Johnson was saying, giving the child opportunity to voice uh, what their opinion is of where they're at right you know, at that moment. Um, and maybe kind of giving a little bit of probing questions to see if there's anything that they'd like to share with you. Uh, and then if that doesn't work, then maybe seeking other people, maybe family members or um, godparents um, who might know the child and be able to provide another place where they can feel supported and safe sharing. Um, and then there are also um, there's psychologists like ourselves who also work with families and children uh, when when these issues become a concern or where the communication just isn't there and parents know that there's something that um, uh, is impacting their functioning, but they can't quite get there. Well, and a lot of times, Martin, I can't imagine your 13-year-old son doesn't tell you absolutely everything all the time. No, he says it's, everything's fine, Dad. Yeah, fine. I think that's probably a pretty familiar <laughs> phrase that yes. a lot of parents hear. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And yet if you identified that maybe something wasn't fine, 
I would imagine school teachers and school counselors and some other folks to kind of get a new perspective on what's really going on. Yeah, and and I think it's perfectly okay and probably even a good idea sometimes um, to check in with teachers or counselors if you have a concern about your child, um, get their perspective on things because they got they've been looking at kids for a long time and they got a lot of kids to look at and they see your kid on a daily basis. Um, uh, and and then really there's nothing wrong with coming in to see a psychologist. Um, you know, we have a, a particular way of uh, looking at things and a particular way of comparing children um, and, and helping them not necessarily, I, I always say normal is overrated. I, I try to always help uh, people, kids or adults, become more of who they are. Um, and so uh, certainly there's a certain amount of bumps you're going to expect in adolescence. And so you don't have to come running to psychologists the first time you see a bump. But if there's something that's not getting better, if there's something that's going on for weeks or months, um, and it's impacting how they're doing in school, they're eating, they're sleeping, um, those sorts of things, they're not enjoying the things they used to enjoy, then those would be signs that you might want to get some professional help. What would be the most common issue that would occur in an adolescent that parents should watch out for? Well, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of things. I think um, uh, everybody talks about uh, peer pressure. Um, you know, substance abuse is a real um, concern and uh, oftentimes a danger at this stage of life um, and in the islands as well as across the country um, and the developed world. So, you know, anytime you get a sense that your child is abusing substance, um, you know, sometimes it's a little embarrassing. Um, we think that somehow may be a poor reflection on us as parents. Um, but in today's world, it's, it's really kind of widely available. And especially if you have a young adolescent um, getting involved with drugs, uh, substance abuse, um, that's a concern and should be addressed as soon as possible. Um, any other uh, actions of self-harm, uh, where a child is uh, cutting or burning or hitting their head or doing things that intentionally phys causes physical pain um, is definitely a, a sign. Um, and then depression, where they're really just not enjoying themselves. They're, um, uh, they're either uh, typically isolating. Um, uh, perhaps there's a change in appetite, either uh, excessive appetite or no appetite. Um, those are all flags that we should be concerned Kind of similar to what we would see in adults. Yes, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with a trio of experts. We have Dr. Janelle Kaloy Chen, Dr. Martin Johnson, and Dr. Lauren Kagami. And we're all here today talking about the psychological effects of biological changes. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about the, the young adult as you move into those 20s. 30s, fertility years, what are some of the other changes that happen? And we're going to kind of cross the lifespan through our discussion today. If you or someone you love has had some troubles with some psychological issues that occurred around a time when they had hormone changes, or if you've had some experience, have some words of wisdom for everybody else listening. Anybody can learn when they have an experience firsthand shared from other listeners. So you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I especially like to listen to uh, Marketplace. I find that I'm on the road around that time and that it's very uh, informative. Um, sometimes I'll be driving when StoryCorps comes on, and those segments always make my eyes well up a little bit, and then I have to regain my composure before I go to the office in the morning. Member-supported, 
Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. New York has a special interest for me when it is wrapped in fog. Then it behaves very much like a blind person. This week on Selected Shorts, Helen Keller's New York from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Lauren Kagami, Dr. Janelle Koloi-Chen, and Dr. Martin Johnson. They're from the Hawaii Center for Psychology. And today we're talking about biology and the mind and what sort of changes might occur in the body that can elicit some changes in the mind and what sort of what behaviors are normal and what behaviors require a little bit more attention. Now, if you or someone you love has ever been through these these turmoil times of maybe being a teenager. We're going to talk a little bit about as life goes on, going through fertility years, menopause years, menopause years, and talk about getting older. We'd like to hear from you if you've got some expert advice on something you learned taking care of your teenagers or your nieces and nephews or even your parents. Never hurts to share your story. We could all learn from each other. You can do so at 941-3689, toll-free, from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, we were talking about teenagers. Let's move on to the to the early 20s, to the prime sort of fertility years. And, and so what are some of the changes that might occur in men and women around this time? And, you know, we always hear about there being a certain time of life when, unfortunately, some people get diagnosed with serious mental illnesses, schizophrenia, etc. Mm-hmm. Is there something about this time in our 20s or so that that make us particularly vulnerable. Dr. Janelle? Yeah, I, I mean, I think during, like you said, kind of approaching childbearing years, right, women kind of experience mood symptoms that can accompany PMS, right, that that time of the month. Um, and then also in pregnancy, right, Hor- particularly those reproductive hormones sort of increase gradually, progesterone, estrogen, that really make... Um, it's more that sort of that drastic increase, right, those changes that really can make a woman more susceptible for depression. Um, and not only um, as it's sort of rising, right, but for, for postpartum after, as those hormones dropped drastically right before birth. Um, and then when those sort of kind of normative changes, right, that occur during a, a woman's life is sort of complicated by issues like, like you mentioned, um, pregnancy loss, infertility, chronic health conditions, it really can sort of make a woman even more vulnerable. And I think that's why we see a lot of the initial um, onset of depression, anxiety, and whatnot occurring sort of during this this age frame. And so really, there are some biological changes, some psychological changes. What can women do about it? I mean, if, if your moods are directly connected to your hormone levels, and you're not necessarily able to control hormone levels. Mm-hmm. You know, pregnancy is a natural hormone change. Right. You know, certainly you can take take hormone pills to sort of regulate that. But in the absence of doing that, what can you do if you find that you are susceptible to these mood swings and changes with hormone levels? 
or what can a loved one do if they recognize it and they want to support you? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes just having that information that that it's not all in my head, right? That I'm not just irritable because I'm an irritable person, right? But but I'm responding to some of these physiological changes, right? Um, to kind of feel normal, yeah, although to kind of normalize. We don't want to call it normal, but still make people not feel like it's all them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and okay. and with a lot of my patients too, we'll we'll look at some of the the thoughts and and perceptions that accompany you know some of these mood swings like you mentioned, um, and work to sort of develop healthier ways to sort of respond, right? Not catastrophize, not... Every time it always happens like this, it'll never change to sort of eliminate that. Right, to sort of reframe the way we think about these things. And also to um, what we call, the term we call um, in psychology, right, behavior activation. Go out and do things that make you feel good. Exercise, you know, we, we do know that when we exercise, right, we... Um, produce endorphins, our, our, our body's natural sort of mood regulating. So what if Ben and Jerry's produces endorphins? It, it does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so exercise and then treat yourself to some Haagen-Dazs, but not In necessarily right. just have the Haagen-Dazs or the Ben and Jerry's. Or, you know, it's like, I'm not even saying get the stuff on sale. I'm just going for the expensive kinds. <laughs> Let's get the real good stuff. You must okay. know I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I, I might join you on that one. All right. So, you know, speaking of, of going through some of those symptoms and knowing that it's normal mm-hmm. and knowing that it's okay, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Desi from Hawaii. Kai wanted to know something about anxiety and migraines, and are those connected? Desi, welcome to The Body Show. Are you there, Desi? Oh, yes. Hi. Sorry about that. That's okay. Tell us, you had a question about maybe some of the biology behind migraines and could that be affected by symptoms of anxiety? Is that right? Yeah, especially because in my case, it's correlated, um, it's directly related actually with an autoimmune disease that runs in my family. And so as, as especially one of the main symptoms is miscarriage or stroke by the age of 27. I am 25, going on 26 in a month. So aside from the overall anxiety of this disease and taking pre- uh, preventative measures, it's also been, as I'm old, as I get older, my migraines are getting significantly worse where I'm experiencing, you know, numbness and loss of feeling in one interior side of my body and face, sometimes speech impediment, uh, causes issues, remembering things. And I also work in healthcare. You can imagine trying to go to work and balancing all my symptoms. It does cause a great sense of anxiety and I've, I've started feeling like I can't trust myself sometimes. Is that something that would naturally go along with it, or could it just be just overall anxiety over my entire, I guess, health organism um, yeah, situation? It's a really good question, Desi. Now, do you don't mind if I ask, is the autoimmune disorder, you're talking lupus, antiphospholipid, antibody syndrome, what are you talking about? APS. Okay, so antiphospholipid syndrome, which is the one associated with clots and all these other changes and miscarriages. The reason I ask is because when you describe episodes of numbness and when you describe episodes of tingling, make sure your doctor knows about that because the unique feature of APS is that you can actually have these little transient clots that can develop in the brain and can cause symptoms of numbness and tingling, which makes your life really difficult because you can also be really stressed and anxious about it and have the same exact symptoms. So went to doctor's office last week because of it. 
Right. And and really, it's not like you're you're not a hypochondriac. You know, APS is a serious medical condition. And if you have it in your family, it could cause you to have neurological problems. And it's not just your standard average anxious person coming in saying I'm numb all over my whole body and stressed. This is actually could physically have a, a biological basis. So let's pretend for the sake of this discussion that you're told it is not your APS and that is not the cause of the tingling. Because if we take that out of the equation, I'm assuming that your doctor did, but if we take that out, yeah, then I think there's a really good question that you have underneath that, which has to do with can anxiety precipitate some of your some of your physical symptoms? And and Dr. Janelle, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Martin, you're all shaking your head like, yeah, of course it can. So tell me a little bit about it, Dr. Lauren. Anxiety to the point where you're really worried about serious health issues having a major medical basis, but let's just assume that there is no major medical basis. Can that cause you to have migraines? Can it affect the rest of your body's health or your perception of it? Yeah, so assuming that you've um, been medically cleared and that doesn't explain your symptoms. Right, we're going to make that assumption. Mm -hmm. Not that we can over the phone, Desi, Mm -hmm. but just so that your doctor, I'm going to assume, has told you that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, there can be a correlation between migraines or any type of headache, um, particularly tension and migraine headaches, and anxiety. Um, It's kind of a chicken or egg debate. Uh, Sometimes when we're stressed or worried about our health conditions, this can cause tension in the neck. This can cause us to um, not breathe very well. It can cause us to do more lifestyle changes that we wouldn't necessarily do when we're not stressed. Um, And these types of things can lead to migraines. Like what kind of lifestyle changes? Uh, Things that we wouldn't normally do. What sort of stuff? So say we're someone who exercises regularly, gets eight hours of sleep. Okay, in my Um, dreams, I exercise regularly, (laughs) and I get eight hours of sleep, and that's Mm -hmm. about as close as it comes, which would be my fantasy dream world. (laughs) But okay, so Mm -hmm. these would be lifestyle, good lifestyle changes that you'd Mm -hmm. be doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and so when we're stressed, we're less likely to do those kinds of things. Whatever we normally do to keep ourselves on track and healthy, uh, maybe not even drinking enough water or eating a healthy diet. Um, And so that can make us more likely to have migraines as well. So there's a lot of possible psychological reasons why we can bring on these headaches. Mm-hmm. You know, and my, my first thought is, boy, you can just get all this neck tension, pinch a few nerves and feel tingling anywhere. And that that can also occur as well. So there could be even a physical basis that is not, in this case, an autoimmune mm-hmm. disorder mm-hmm. that could cause similar symptoms. Mm-hmm. But it really comes from the tension, the stress, the anxiety mm-hmm. of worrying about mm-hmm. psych- psychologically, mm-hmm. are you going to be okay? Yeah, and, and what we know about chronic pain is that after a while, um, our body almost becomes vigilant to tension and anxiety and, and, and stressors, things that cause us stress. So if, say, um, you know, there's a certain individual that we interact with that causes us stress um, and it makes us tense, and the next time we're around that individual or, or we're feeling that way, we might be more likely to tense up and worry um, about what's going to happen. And so there develops this fear around stress and anxiety and and. Um, the onset of a headache, which unfortunately can make us more likely to then have headaches also. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Desi, I wish you the best of luck, and I hope that your doctors can help you with this APS syndrome, this antiphospholipid syndrome, 
and really help allay your fears that a lot of your symptoms are not from that. But do know that it seems like those two things could be connected. The anxiety, the migraines, the, the physical tension and the psychological tension. It's, it's not that you're making it up and nobody's going to suggest that. You really can feel physical symptoms when you have this this reaction, this stress reaction, this anxiety reaction. And there's some great things, you know, you could talk to a therapist, you could talk to a psychologist and work through some non-pharmacologic ways to reduce that stress. I mean, I think some people fear seeing an expert because they're afraid they're going to have to take pills or medicine. And that's not really the case. In fact, with psychologists, although I firmly believe you should be able to prescribe, um, you often do not prescribe medication on your own. You work with doctors to be able to do so. And yet you have years of expertise in knowing how to handle these situations. Talk with someone, Desi, because they might really be able to help you. You know, Kathy, one of the things that I like to emphasize about anxiety is it is one of the most common things that we as psychologists work with. And it's one of the most treatable things. People get better just through the course of psychotherapy. Uh, Very simple things like controlling the breath, becoming aware of the anxiety, and regaining control over it. As Lauren was saying, especially if we're sort of chronically tense, chronically in pain, we get very tuned in and very sensitive to it. And the difference between anxiety, which everybody has anxiety, and an anxiety disorder is with an anxiety disorder, we get anxious about becoming anxious. And so, as Lauren was saying, if, if there's someone around and we get stressed when we see them and then when our migraine flares up, as soon as we see them, we're worried the migraine's going to flare up and then it becomes that self-perpetuating cycle. So learning to break that, learning how to relax instead and control our breathing, control our thoughts, uh, can go a very long way towards helping improve and reduce these anxiety symptoms. Really changing the behavioral pattern. Mm-hmm, exactly. From the trigger that says, okay, I see you, Martin. You freak me out. I'm getting all anxious. <laughs> to, oh, yay, it's Martin. He's here. And sort of changing that trigger to make it a positive trigger. Right. Okay. And then cha- and that's, that's a huge element of psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I, I really want to emphasize the point where you said you can get better. People do not have to suffer with these symptoms. In mm-hmm. fact, to do so is really to shortchange themselves from leading a full, productive life because they could without all these anxiety symptoms. People are often amazed. I've worked with people who have been suffering with anxiety uh, problems for years and decades, Um, and they're often surprised at how quickly they can begin to get relief and start turning it back around. Excellent thoughts. Okay, because nobody has to suffer from those sorts of symptoms. If you are able to seek professional help, really, you should do so because it, it can really make a huge difference. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Lauren Kagami, Dr. Janelle Kaloy Chen, Dr. Martin Johnson. And we're talking today about psychological effects of biological changes. And if you want to join our conversation, just had a great call from Desi. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Janelle, we were talking a little bit about hormone changes and fertility and postmenopausal, I mean, sorry, not postmenopausal yet. We're talking a little bit about um, postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and some changes that occur. Let's kind of move towards the issue of menopause because that's another prime time when Women often have a lot of hormone changes and perimetopausal time when they're maybe towards the later years of fertility and maybe when their estrogen and progesterone levels are declining. How does that affect how people feel, how women feel Mm -hmm. psychologically? And how does that affect the whole whole family, their partner, their children, their friends, their job, 
it really does have some effects, not just for the person themselves. Definitely, Kathy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, right around sort of peri. We, um, it's kind of referred to a lot now perimenopausal symptoms, right? Because yeah, we've when, extended the age. Right. Like it starts earlier, and I'm just going to pretend I'm in my 20s and live in my fantasy dream world where I sleep eight hours mm-hmm. and exercise every day. So, so I'll pretend I'm in my 20s. But you're right. It's that they start talking about it now mm-hmm. in like the early 40s. Mm-hmm. I'm scared. At now. around the age of 35 to 50. The you just made it even younger. Right. Thanks, Janelle. Thank you. Okay. So around 35 to 50, you start seeing these changes. We start seeing uh, a decrease, right, in estrogen okay. and progesterone, which is, which sort of um, results in a wide range of symptoms for women, right? The, the hot flashes, the night sweats. Uh, probably one of the most common that I'll see are is insomnia, which can be really kind of debilitating, not just like you mentioned for the woman, but for, for her family, right, and her spouse. Um, and the mood changes that, that can kind of occur with it, um, body changes as well, that also sort of affect a, a woman's sense of sort of, you know, womanhood or, 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 or just self-image. Just well-being. Just, right. you know, a good night's sleep can cure a lot of things, but mm-hmm. if you can't get it, that becomes a serious problem. So what are the good sides? You know, we talk about all these changes that occur in perimenopause, sort of the psychological changes that might go along with these physical changes. Tell me some good stuff. Please tell me good stuff. Well, a woman starts stops menstruating. Eventually. All right, <laughs> so we'll that, that that's definitely a, a okay a, a positive. And then those drastic hormone changes that occur with cycles right. may not be as obvious. Okay, mm-hmm. and so so hormones tend to sort of even out after a while, um, and and so those those are probably some of you know in terms of the the. In terms of the good things, I, I, the thing that's sort of just sticking out to me is not having that monthly, monthly period. That's all you got, huh? <laughs> all right, Janelle, thanks. Well, well, let's talk. That's around the same time that people might experience what they call uh, what they term a midlife crisis. Right. And that's sort of a whole other element of psychological overlay on top of physical overlay. Right. And how would you describe a midlife crisis? Do you think it's more hormonal, psychological, or probably a combination of both? It's probably a combination of both. Um, like you were saying, right, as they sort of go through some of the perimenopa- perimenopausal symptoms or, or menopausal symptoms, there's oftentimes large life changes occurring at that time, right? Sort of approaching retirement, um, kids leaving the house for college, you know, kind of that empty nest syndrome, right? Um, maybe even um, going through different health conditions, right? Um, that can kind of all sort of exacerbate. Some of those could be good. Right. Retirement. Right. Depending on the situation, kids off to college, some mm-hmm. people could be happy about it. But you're right, there's some other issues that might play a role in that. And maybe when we come back after the next quick break, we'll talk a little bit about what are some of these midlife to later life changes that occur biologically and how can that affect us psychologically and mm-hmm. really what can we do about it? Because the whole idea is that we want to help people to be able to find help and assistance and not right. feel like it's, you know, like I even joke, tell me something good about it. I mean, you know, to help us reframe it in such a way that we have a positive thought on how these changes are going to affect us mm-hmm. and not necessarily a negative thought. Be more happy like the Ben and Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs <laughs> make us instead of 
the thought of an hour on the treadmill. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my favorite folks from Hawaii Center for Psychology, Dr. Lauren Kagami, Dr. Janelle Kaloi Chen, and Dr. Martin Johnson. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about hormone and biological changes and how that affects our mood as we get older. If you want to join us, if you've got some questions, concerns, or maybe just some tips, you can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Do you remember your first time? My first time? First time of what? It's a little uncomfortable. Should I talk about it now? Your first time listening to NPR's Morning Edition, that is. I was six years old riding around in my parents' car, and I was like, what is this stuff? I just kept listening. No matter how many times you've listened, listen again each weekday to Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. On New Letters on the Air, Kenneth Irby discusses ideas that have influenced his work for five decades, culminating in his book of collected poems, The Intent On. Art is what is there beyond what you intended. Listen to Kenneth Irby talk with former Kansas poet laureate Denise Lowe as he reads poems inspired by the Black Mountain poets on the next New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Lauren Kagami, Dr. Janelle Kaloi Chen, and Dr. Martin Johnson from the Hawaii Center for Psychology. And today we're talking about the mind-body balance and how those two things are intricately connected. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the changes that occur in women and, and also in men as they get towards the later years in their 40s and 50s and have these hormone changes And Dr. Lauren, you kind of just, you know, I was looking for something good. And you're like, hello, there are a lot of studies that show that women and men can be happier as the years go on. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, there there are a lot of um, difficult changes hormonally for women at this period. Um, And so they are, you know, dealing with uh, shifts in in their bodies and, and in their lifestyle as people leave. Um, maybe children, um, jobs change, but also uh, as as we adjust to those changes, we might find some relief in our normal day to day responsibilities. Uh, you might not have to, you know, spend as much time caring for your kids. Um, you might have more time to do the things that you enjoy. Uh, and and for some people that may be a difficult process, but for others it can be really liberating, where they find for the first time um, hobbies that they didn't know that they had, and they actually have time for the hobbies. Yes, okay. um, and and renewing relationships that they they haven't had a lot of time to spend on. So lots of positive things. Mm-hmm. You're throwing a positive spin to me. I'm liking that, uh, Doctor Martin. Tell me, men, we're talking about women and and menopause, but. Men also go through some changes as well, and that may be tied to lower testosterone levels, may be tied to age, may be tied to a lot of things. But what sort of issues do men go through, and, and how can the the other men in their lives and, and women support them when they go through it? Well, Kathy, the, for, for men, the, the hormone swing is generally more long-term. There, well, there's two. There's one that's throughout the day as opposed to throughout the month, and then sort of more long term. And and for men, testosterone 
tends to peak uh, generally in mid-teens. And I'm not making any excuses for any poor behavior on young men's part, but women have a little sympathy on these guys. Their testosterone peaks when they least are prepared to deal with it. So uh, raging hormones around 16, 17 is the most testosterone they're ever going to have, and they don't know what to do with it. So I hope your son's listening. Of... He's going to get a little bit of sympathy, <laughs> give him a couple of years. He's going to be like, Dad, you know what you said. Okay. And then as we get on into the 40s and 50s, testosterone levels do begin to drop. In fact, they're starting to drop in the 20s slowly. But then they drop a little more rapidly as we get into middle age. Um, and for men, that doesn't have to be problematic. For some men, it is. Um, but but actually, you know, there's a lot of research that says that men sweeten as they age. Um, they're not quite as um, uh, 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 acerbic or uh, aggressive. I'm um, letting you fill in that blank. I'm not <laughs> helping you there. I'm just going to let um, you go down the hole there. And actually go <laughs> Going with something that um, Dr. Kagami was mentioning, there's actually uh, research for both men and women that there's a happiness U, that basically the happiness is in a U shape across the lifespan with, with one peak of happiness sort of in those early 20s when everything's grand and we're invincible and, and everybody's our friend. Um, and then it sort of dips as we move through the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and then begins to come up again in the 50s um, as we have less responsibilities, as our children are grown, as we are less worried about what everybody else is thinking of us and looking at us about, um, as we realize actually nobody was thinking that much about us or looking yeah. at us in the first place. Um, and we kind of grow into our own selves. And, and so that's kind of typical across the, the lifespan for both men and women. So happy days are coming. Uh, many people are they're happiest in their 50s and 60s and beyond. Well, that's a good way to put a spin on it. Now, what happens, let's talk about the even older group. You know, we see a lot of, every day, I think, what did I read a statistic? Like 10,000 people become 65. The baby boomer age is, is, we are here. We are in the middle of it. They're all becoming seniors. And there's a whole different implication of what happens as you get even older and you go through your your 40s and your 50s and, and maybe start the whole process of I'm thinking of retirement, I'm thinking of old age, I'm thinking of how to prepare for the future. There's a whole bunch of things that go on psychologically at that time. Do you see people having crises around the idea of turning 65, of getting that Medicare card and you know, kind of looking at retirement and Social Security, does that generate another time in life where people sort of have another episode of anxiety and kind of worry about it? I think it it varies widely uh, with individuals, uh, both men and women, in terms of, um, you know, are we are we prepared? Are we content? Are we happy to be where we are in life? Um, And if so, these can be some of our very happiest years. Um, If it sort of sneaks up on us um, and uh, we're kind of in denial about it or we have some negative beliefs about what it means to be a certain age at any age. One of the hardest things I have as a therapist is when I'm sitting with somebody in their mid to late 20s and they tell me with a straight face and they're quite distressed. You know, Dr. Johnson, I just I'm feeling so old and I I have to empathize with them because that's how they're feeling in the moment. But as I'm sitting there twice their age, it's very hard for me to empathize sometimes. Um, But so it's really not necessarily the age itself as it is. Are we accepting of where we are? Are we happy with our lives? Are we content to be who we are and where we are? And if so, then we tend to be fairly happy folks. And if not, then, yes, we can be uh, in a midlife crisis, a late life crisis. Um, It could be in any life crisis. That's right. And you see people, uh, you know, sort of struggling with that at times. And what can you do to help them? 
I mean, I think we all struggle with this sort of identity of ourselves and are we where we expect to be academically or physically or family-wise or psychologically. Everybody struggles with something. And it's kind of funny because the people who you think have everything, you talk with them and they're struggling about something that you don't even think about or worry about. Mm -hmm. And yet it's this big issue for them. So what can people do if they've identified a particular area where they're not happy or satisfied? And are there are there things that they can do to address that on a psychological basis? Because let's say physically it's not a it's it's not a physical issue. Let's say it's more of a of a psychological emotional issue. So it's not as simple as, well, you don't exercise, so go exercise and you'll feel better. A little bit more than that. What are some of the things that you counsel the folks that you see about this? Doctor Janelle? Well, I was going to say, I think at this time, too, there's a lot of reflecting, sort of reminiscing, right, kind of looking back. And with a lot of my patients, you know, in this age group, I'll kind of help work with them to, to create this positive narrative of their life, right, this positive narrative of their life story, right, reminiscing on their accomplishments and, and whatnot, looking, you know, still looking forward to the future as well, but really, really looking at the way that they're thinking about their life and, and this narrative that, they're, um, that they, they sort of have, right? And, and working to sort of reframe that in a way that sort of makes sense for the individual, that sort of align with, with who they are, right? Um, what their goals were in life or, or values and whatnot, and, and, and making sure that they're okay with that. And not necessarily regretting the I wish I would right. have, could have, should have, if only. So watching out for some of those those kind of thinking traps is, is sort of the term that I often use in therapy, right? The I, I could have, the must, or I, I, I should have done this, right? Or or the catastrophizing, you know, I, I didn't do this, and then it turned into this, right? And, and the self-blame. Yeah, none of those words go through my head all the time. So I think a lot of us go down that route and say, I shoulda, woulda, coulda, and had I only done things differently. And, you know, it's funny. We like to play that Monday morning quarterback, right, where we kind of look back and think, in that moment, I had the best, you know, all things were aligned, and I could have made this, this perfect decision or had the best sort of judgment at that time. And yet in reality, right, it probably wouldn't have changed very much at all. Mm-hmm. And and you couldn't have changed yourself then. I think that second guessing, it's it's nice to know maybe reframing it right. is another way to address it and sort of change that. Now, let's go a little bit further. Let's let's go beyond 65. Let's go to to our friends who are in their 70s and 80s and beyond. What are some of the psychological issues that people have that you see them for? When they're looking at the aging process, looking at the inevitability of death, we're all going to die at some point, looking at maybe not having their memory, not having their independence, not having all of the things that they used to really enjoy and flourish with. What are some of the changes that occur in our older, older population? Dr. Lauren, do you see folks who are struggling with some of these issues or do you see caregivers that are in their younger ages dealing with mom can't drive and I took away her keys and now she hates me and she's 89 and she's a danger on the road and what should I do? What are some of the things that we can do as people get even older to help them through that process? I think there's a range of presentations in this age group. Uh, some people you may see memory decline. Uh, you may see a higher prevalence of depression and loneliness as people in their life uh, pass away. Um, 
However, there are also a large group of people in this age group that uh, flourish and they uh, discover parts of themselves that they didn't really have before. Like I mentioned, you know, um, with the aging process comes less responsibilities in some ways uh, and you're, you're less... Um, worried about what other people think. And so you might discover different activities that you didn't know you enjoyed. And um, using that opportunity um, as, um, or using that time as an opportunity to to explore um, different things that you maybe um, have regretted not, not doing in the past. And part of that work in therapy is sometimes kind of taking a um, taking a narrative of what you've done so far in your life and um, either re-scripting that narrative or uh, kind of rewriting it going forward and what what do you want to do with the time left in your life. I always wonder if I'll start, like, painting. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, abstract art would be, like, so great for me because I don't know how to make anything look like it really does. So maybe when that happens, you pick up a new hobby that you had no idea you ever had any interest or passion or ability for. It sounds mm-hmm. like there's a lot to learn, a lot of creativity that could could really come out during those years. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Sherry from Kailua. Sherry, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, Dr. Kozak. Um, first of all, thank you for bringing Dr. Lev into your show a couple weeks ago. Excellent. I'm glad you enjoyed his show. He was talking about some new ways to handle pain. Yes. I'm actually seeing him, and he's helping me. Wonderful. I'm happy to hear that. But for today, I wanted to, you know, thank the experts that you have, and I want to make comments or um, sure. suggestions. Uh, my brother became addicted to uh, to uh, drugs when he was a teenager, and there's a great book that was written uh, by a scientist, uh, Dr. Francis Jensen, The Teenage Brain. Um, I recommend that to everybody, the parents, you know, with teenagers and for those who are teenagers, and I actually just gave it to um, my girlfriend whose daughter became uh, a teenager just a couple weeks ago. Great point to really understand what's going on physiologically and how that can affect behavior. Great idea. Right. And then my husband gave me a book, which I was kind of didn't understand where he got it for me because I was really young back then. (laughs) He gave me the book, The Wisdom of Menopause by Dr. Christian Northrop. Okay, and I gather he gave it to you when you weren't in menopause and you were kind of wondering. No, I wasn't. I wasn't there yet. I was really young. I was in. <laughs> I was. Uh, it it was a book that it took me a while to uh, to read to be interested in, and when I started reading it, I said, "I wish I had this book when I was a teenager." Wow. Okay. So no matter what age, this was a great idea, and he got you a fabulous book, and retrospectively. It was a real gift, even though at the time you might have been like, really? Thanks, hon. Okay. <laughs> it's a great book about a woman's body. Okay. So that's two excellent suggestions, The Teenage Brain and The Wisdom of Menopause. Yes. Unfortunately, my brother died from liver cancer uh, when he was 49, and using drugs might have been you know, a contributing factor to his demise early demise. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that. So you've made some great suggestions on 
other resources people can go to to learn a little bit more about this. Thank you. And personally, I've been through menopause, and I got a lot of help understanding how my brain works. From one, one scientist wrote the female brain and the male brain. I love the female brain. It's, well, that's good because you have one. That's good that you like the one that was for you. Okay. It really helped me understand the transition between, you know, perimenopause and menopause. And it also talks in the different stages of life. It's, it's uh, not as good as the wisdom of menopause, but it's, I highly recommend them. Now, did you read The Male Brain just because? Oh, yeah, because, I, you know, I have to understand all the men in my life. I think it's husband, great. Good. My coworkers, everybody. Well, and you kind of owed it to him to read it because he did get you that great book all those years ago. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your sources for more information. That really helps. And, and it helps to bring us to the last couple of minutes of the show. And I'm, I'm curious, for people who have questions about some of these issues and some of the biological and psychological components, uh, Dr. Martin, where can they get more information? If, they, if they're at the point where they're like, you know, I think I may want to speak to a professional about it. How can they find you guys? Well, you know, I, they can find us certainly on the web, hawaiicenterforpsychology.com. Uh, there's 12 psychologists uh, in the center um, covering the lifespan and, and all sorts of sorts of specialties. Um, and I guess I just want to empower people, as, as Sherry did, to sort of, you know, look for resources on their own. There's a lot out there on the web, uh, and if we look for reliable sources on the web, um, WebMD and things like that. There's lots of ways to sort of educate ourselves. And if the education, if the data isn't enough, if you have concerns about what's going on with you, then certainly psychologists can help, and, and we're one group of those folks. And don't be scared. Dr. Lauren, do you ever have people see you and, and they say, I was so scared to, to schedule an appointment, yet afterwards I feel so much better? Mm-hmm. I actually hear that a lot on, on almost every patient that I see, um, especially first-time patients. Almost say that they were terrified coming in. They almost didn't make it through the door. Um, but after the first talk, and especially after maybe the third session, um, they tell me that they're, they couldn't wait to come in this time. Wow. So that total transition from fear to looking forward to it. And Dr. Janelle, I'm sure you have similar experience with folks who are at first a little reluctant, but then jump on board and say, why didn't I come here earlier? You know, the stigma of psychologists is changing. Right? And, there shouldn't um, be one at all, <laughs> I've got to say. It is changing. And particularly in my sort of line of work, I'm, I think I mentioned to you earlier, sort of embedded within a primary care um, office, a, a group of, of primary care physicians. And we do know that um, people are much more likely to um, show up to their appointments and, and sort of be, be engaged when services are provided in a more collaborated, sort of integrative team setting. And so that, that definitely helps as well. All right. Well, I want to thank all three of you for sharing your expertise. Martin, you said there's 12. There are three here. I've got nine more on my list. Okay. So thanks so much for sharing your expertise, all of you, today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next Monday right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.